What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. I'm so excited to be back with a brand new season. Uh, Thank you guys for being patient while I record new episodes. And I have a bunch that I'm very excited to release and some that I'm still working on. I've got one tomorrow that I'm really excited about um, that uh, will be out fairly soon. So lots of different topics and lots of different guests, uh, as always. So this season, though, we start off where we kind of left off. Last season, where I bring back my friend Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, and uh, very very excited because we, you know, enjoyed our conversation so much the last time that we had talked about like what are some things that we could cover that we could discuss together that might might be really interesting for people to hear. And so uh, we sort of fell into this this idea that we think is great, and hopefully you guys enjoy. But it's uh, sort of looking at what we would refer to from the Christian perspective as Old Testament stories, things that we grew up with and that we've, we've heard a million times through a certain lens and perspective, and uh, sort of getting the, the Jewish take on it. And after all, it only makes sense. Uh, the Jewish people wrote <laughs> the Bible, so, uh, so it makes too much sense to get some, uh, some of that perspective, and it's, it's really kind of a beautiful thing. And so we had a really good time with it. We will revisit this throughout the season. So this is just the first um, uh, couple parts. So part one will be this week. Part two will be next week. And uh, we'll have three and four later on throughout the season. Um, so we're still working on on that piece, but uh, really excited to bring this to you. So before we get to it, uh, the usual housekeeping stuff, if you go to www.thedeconstructions.com, Uh, That's got our entire back catalog that you can stream directly from the website of over 150 episodes now over the past seven plus years, which is insane to me. But hey, uh, time flies when you're having fun. Uh, You can also find our blog there. So if you want to check out uh, some of the things that we've written, uh, links to social media and links to our Patreon and our web store, if you'd like to support what we're doing, uh, really appreciate that. Uh, And with that being said, uh, let's get to it. Oh, also I want to thank uh, Clay. 
uh, Clay Kirchenbauer for, um, as always, providing the lovely intro music and outro music that you hear uh, from his EP. Uh, links are, again, in the show notes. So go out and support Clay and his work uh, under the name Forrest Clay. Um, he's on all the usual platforms, but uh, but check it out. So with that being said, and without further ado, I bring you Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. Do you believe in hope? Cause I am hopeless. Do you believe in love? Cause I'm alone. Do you believe in All right, welcome back to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I have with me my my friend, Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. Thank you so much for coming back. Oh, it's a pleasure, and I love that you are comfortable calling me a friend. I certainly feel that way, and this is very much a joint venture. So if one can be a guest and what one is beginning to feel is also their home, that's what you've managed to create, and I'm very grateful to you for that. Oh, same. And uh, and it's good timing. You know, We're recording right now. Uh, shortly after releasing the, the first episode, the first interview that we did together, and uh, people are already, you know, sending in uh, emails and, and notes and things saying how much they loved it. So this is great timing. Excellent. That's very kind. Uh, and as people are sending questions in due course over time in the future, we'll get to those too. That would be a pleasure. Absolutely. So one of the things that I've just started doing, and this is uh, one of the first interviews, I'm, I'm in that period of time now where I'm between seasons and just recording uh, one of the things we thought would be kind of neat to do uh, is to get the get, get to know the guests on a on a more personal level and and uh, uh, not something that you often hear from uh, academics necessarily, but ask you some questions just about you. And so I'm going to give you five questions. You can okay. answer however you like. <laughs> so, uh, what was your favorite subject growing up in school? So before I answer the question, I'm going to be very rabbinic. I'm going to comment on the premise. <laughs> which I think is magnificent. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and actually, one of the reasons why I didn't remain in the academy and really embraced being a rabbi, because for me, these ideas really only reach the fullness of their value in the context of the personal. If it's only personal, then it's just more new age narcissism, and I'm not interested. <laughs> True. But divorcing the personal is tragic. Hmm. This is personal. And in fact, I'll go further. I believe that all theology is grounded in biography. And so I love that you're doing it this way, and I think it's really important. My favorite subjects um, in school. And I had a somewhat different you know, education because I went to Jewish schools from the age of three. Um, and I don't know if I thought of it that way then because it wasn't presented. But I was fascinated by religion and history from a very early age. I mean, the history was presented as history, and I loved it. And half of every day was spent su studying you know, religious subjects. But... It wasn't only Jewish. In fact, in the, you know, the so-called general studies part of our day, and I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, there was this thing where scholastic books used to send around these yes. subscriptions, right? So I, they had on the list, I was probably in, I don't know, fifth grade, what was essentially a condensed New Testament for kids. And I wanted 
I wanted that as one of the books I selected. <laughs> so I select it, and I ask my parents for money to kick back to my Jewish school. To and, and they they were fine. They were like they knew exactly what it was, and they were totally chill about it. And they're pretty passionate Jews, but it wasn't even an issue. So I come into class, and my teacher looks at the list, and she goes, "Wait, do you know what this is?" <laughs> And I said, I mean, I have a rough idea of what it is. I don't know all the details because I've never really read the stories. But, yeah. And she, I never finish, she goes, do your parents know you're getting this book? <laughs> and I said, my parents gave me the money for this book. So, yes. <laughs> and I was fascinated. So I have been hooked from a very early age on the stories that people tell to make sense of their lives and our world. And I guess that's been my favorite subject all along. I love that. That's that's really good. So uh, even then, so thinking back to your youth, this is another kind of a question based on your your childhood. Do you recall what was the first thing that you decided you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, that's a really good question. And I don't know. Well, no, I do know. The first thing I wanted to be when I was about three years old was a garbage man. <laughs> and Important. I wanted to be a garbage man because I watched these guys who got to ride on the outside of these trucks. And that was so cool because who gets to ride on the outside of the truck? <laughs> um, so that went away fairly quickly. And I think there was early on some inkling that even though I, I wasn't particularly religiously observant, but the idea that rabbis were people who spent their time immersed in these stories, in these texts, that was interesting to me. Um, but it had no connection to actually being a rabbi, per se. It was like, oh, and also, I'm sure you know plenty of people tell this story, whether it's Jewish tradition, Christian tradition, Muslim tradition, right? Any kid who's like seriously interested in their faith, oh, you'll be a rabbi. Oh, you'll be a priest. <laughs> so I think other people thought I would be a rabbi a long time before I thought I'd be a rabbi. That's too funny. Uh, okay. How about uh, favorite? Do you have a favorite musician or artist? A uh, couple, actually. Uh, I, I was and still am, although in a different kind of way, a pretty serious deadhead. I love the really? Grateful Dead. Um, I am, you know, for people who know that culture, a century man, meaning I've seen a hundred live shows. And what I loved about the dead was not just the music. It was the act of disciplined improvisation mm. was really clear anytime you saw them perform and holding that tension between what clearly took a lot of expertise and discipline and practice, but was absolutely proudly and happily improvisational felt to me really important. I also loved them because there was a generosity of spirit, right? I came of age and everyone was beginning to tape, people who remember what, you know, cassette tapes were. <laughs> and every other band, it was illegal to tape their shows. Mm. And here was this band that said, go ahead, tape away. The music, yes, we're in business, and yes, we sell tickets, but once we've played it, it's yours. Mm. 
And I love that approach to something that one held so dearly that once it was offered, then it belongs to someone else and they should go and they should use it and they should enjoy it. And the last piece was, it was the band where you always knew it was going to be really easy for people who wanted to find a worship service, a Jewish worship service, you could do it. And only later did I appreciate, because thank God I never needed this, yeah, you could find an afternoon or evening service, right? Which is, you know, it's not like there's so many Jews in the world. So you could, it's one thing to say you could find a Christian worship service, but you could always find a Jewish worship service. And you could also find AA meetings. Hmm. And I didn't even really know exactly what AA was, but I knew there were people who had problems with drinking or with drugs, and that there was a way you could be in that setting and still get support. So that, in addition to just loving the heck out of their music. Um, So they would definitely be toward the top of the list. And um, I love the the jazz uh, pianist and band leader, Ahmad Jamal. Um, And I love his music. And I, because when I came back from Israel to go to college when I was 21, um, he spent a lot of time playing live in Chicago because it's jazz. There are very few people. You could go to clubs where there are like, you know, 30 people and, and sit right there with him as he played. And it was just amazing. Oh, good answer. And I, I sense the theme there. It, it takes yeah. a lot of talent to be a musician who can yeah. just riff. You know, it's right. Like I said, it's both real, real, real discipline and real openness to once you've got the discipline to feel comfortable riffing, but you can't, it's not a game. It's a, or if it's a game, it's a very serious game. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Big, big, important one here. Favorite food. Oh, wow. Um, if I were left with only one food in the world to eat, and this is ironic cause I don't eat it really anymore. It would definitely be pizza. <laughs> That's a good, yes. Uh, good choice. One, it's not even close. So it's, I don't know, like the next one down will be like fourth place. Yeah, But it's funny because I don't eat pizza anymore because over the last three, four years, I found that carbohydrates like that and I don't get along so well. (laughs) Um, And after a life, talk about addictions, wrestling with obesity, over the last four years, I lost about 85 pounds. Now, I'm hardly thin. Yeah, I mean, I'm hardly thin. But for the first time, really, in my adult life, I'm at a sustained healthy weight. Um, but here's the thing. It doesn't mean I still don't love pizza. I don't need to eat the food to love the food. I still have wonderful memories of all the unkosher foods I grew up eating. Right? <laughs> true. And I love cooking in general. I love, what the co- I love the food network. I love preparing food. One of the great joys of my life is when things are calm enough and I can you know, go into the kitchen, open a bottle of wine, and it's a Thursday night or a Friday afternoon and start making Sabbath meals for people. That, to me, is the ultimate relaxation. So pizza is definitely the number one thing I would consume if I could consume it, but I don't. And it doesn't matter because in that sense, I love food. Uh, and there's nothing better than sharing a meal with, with people you no, love. It's the, look, our traditions know that, right? Yeah. Whether it's a Sabbath meal or the Passover Seder or the Lord's Supper or whatever, right? They knew what they were doing. They did. They did. All right. Last one. And you can choose favorite book or movie. Um, favorite movie is easier. The okay. Godfather. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I, I, to me, I mean, I just, you know, 
Because like the Bible, it's an epic story about elemental family stuff, about joys and grievances. And it's also an important cautionary note about what happens when you take all that stuff on without some kind of ethical core. Yeah. And and so, you know, the, the easy one to say is, you know, the Hebrew Bible or the Talmud or things like that. But in many ways, for me, the Hebrew Bible, and I always say the Hebrew Bible because as much as I love studying the New Testament, I'm not studying it as my own book. I'm mm. studying it as someone else's book that I find deeply inspired and inspiring, but it's not mine in the same way. I find the Hebrew Bible, and and I should say Torah writ large, because for me to read the Bible, I am reading through a rabbinic lens. Right? I'm not an ancient Israelite. I'm a Jew. And so they're, they're all kind of of a piece. They are the flip side of the Godfather. One is all that elemental stuff for good and for bad, but lifting up some kind of ethical spiritual core. And one of them is the cautionary tale of what happens when all, because all those human needs and emotions have to be dealt with. That's what it means to be us. And the difference is what happens when you have some core through which you navigate them and when you don't. I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, humoring me and, and, and do, being the, the first to do the five questions. So I, uh, great oh, answers. More than humored. I think it's great. I think it's the fact that you're doing this as an insight all by itself that really needs to be lifted up. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, I, I'm excited to have you back on because you and I have been talking on the side uh, since doing our, our, our first conversation and uh, really uh, thought of some great ideas that um, that we're going to begin with today. And, and the first uh, first conversation that we're going to share with folks is kind of talking about what Christians would refer to as the Old Testament um, uh, and, and looking at some of the, the common you know, stories that Christians have heard and listeners listening right now have heard a million times. But one of the things we learned early on uh, several years ago now, uh, when we first started to invite guests on from various different faith traditions, is that there are some really cool different perspectives on the same old stories that we've heard a million times that kind of shed a new light on it and kind of open it up in a different, new, beautiful way. And so that's what we're going to kind of attempt to do today. But before we get into it, you said something absolutely perfect about the, this conversation we're going to attempt to have in general. And I'd like to start there. Yeah, my, my comment was, I hope this is a genuine conversation in which we're both discovering stuff, because in classic rabbinic method, you don't read these stories to come to a conclusion about this is what they mean, full stop, we're done now. In fact, you keep rereading these stories, and they mean many different things to many different people over many different periods of time. In fact, for me, that's wherein we see their sacredness is we can keep coming back to them and we read them with fresh eyes and fresh hearts and fresh minds. We go, oh my God, literally, oh my God, I ne it never spoke to me that way. And that doesn't mean the way it used to speak to us was bad or wrong. It just means that was us then and it spoke to us in that way. And this is it now and that's why it speaks to us this way. And the fact is, I believe that's baked in to the Hebrew Bible from the very beginning. 
either that or the people who put it together are idiots. And I don't believe, right? And, and again, I say, people, God, I don't care. That's a theological discussion we can have. It doesn't actually matter. If someone believes, and I actually do believe this is revealed material from God. So either God's an idiot or the people who wrote this, if it's people who wrote it, are idiots. Or you realize, no, they're actually quite smart. And they know full well that they are including multiple versions of the same story from the very beginning. They know full well that they are baking in contradictions, that they are canonizing contradictions from the beginning. So unless you're a mean-spirited person, why would you canonize contradiction for your reader? Unless you're a mean-spirited God, why would you reveal a text that has already at the very beginning not one creation story but two creation stories within the creation stories contradictions unless you're inviting people to keep reading and rereading and rediscovering and so I'm the inheritor of that tradition and whatever we could argue for that being there in the Bible it's very overtly there in rabbinic literature which is all about constantly sifting and thrashing out and having multiple voices that disagree, and they're all preserved. And so, for me, what we're doing by reading together, each from the place where we live and feel and faith, is actually the continuation of a tradition that goes back certainly to the time of the earliest rabbis, including one rabbi named Jesus. And actually, I believe much earlier than that, to the very beginning of the Bible, and whoever it was who said, yeah, let's give them two creation stories and see what they do with that. (laughs) Well, I mean, no better place to start than the beginning. Uh, And what's interesting is earlier today, I was actually listening to a... um, uh, biblical scholar who was who was talking about the fact that there's scholar, even scholarly debate today over the Hebrew uh, from which we uh, derive the uh, the opening statement there is it in the beginning or in a beginning and and there's even debate about that before we even get into the verse exactly so one thing we should always lift up is and I'll probably float back and forth because right any given time I'm gonna have like a Hebrew Bible on my desk and I'm also going to, it's probably more familiar to most people here, is just the new Oxford Annotated Bible, right? And, and because, because I'm dancing between the Hebrew in which I was made familiar with these stories from the various early ages to the English that is our shared language. And if you want to get to the New Testament, we have to throw in Greek. So translation is always going to be one of the questions, But it doesn't worry me, and I'll tell you why. Because the act of reading itself is an act of translation. Right? To read two-dimensional words, ink on paper, and have them enter our minds and our hearts, and we're three-dimensional beings. So I don't care. If I'm reading the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, I'm still translating. (laughs) And I still have to always ask, what does this exactly mean? And how is it suggested? So the, the, the shift from Hebrew into English by way of the Greek is just one more layer of the same translational process. And by the way, to be clear, it's not my insight that all acts of reading are translation. It's actually the insight of the French Jewish philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas. 
And it's a very bold thing to simultaneously say that I know I'm always translating, which means it's not only about the book, it's about the reader, and not become cynical about the book. Because like I said, I really believe the books are holy. And so from the very beginning, no joke, is it in the beginning? Is it in a beginning? I think most of us have been trained to think in the beginning. And then you read more carefully. And by the way, that's definitely the way I was raised, right? This is the beginning. Right? And not even a question. And yet, if we look, and here we can use the English, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. So from the very beginning, this may be the beginning, but there was chaos. There were waters. There was God. So it's a funny kind of, this is the beginning of everything, because, no, it can't quite be the beginning of everything. So what I would say is, this is the beginning of the world as we humans are meant to encounter it, as God has created it. And that there is stuff that's there, but we don't know what to make of it, because God hasn't created an order of it that can be decipherable and discernible and meaningful to us. And so I think that's what's going on. But that kind of begs a different question, which is, why begin here at all? I mean, there are a lot of ways, right? If if I were to ask you, well, tell me the story of your life. I don't know. Would you begin with the story of your conception? You might, but you might not. In other words, the fact that the Bible begins here is itself begging for some kind of explanation. And again, I want to be clear, I'm not the first person to notice this. In (laughs) fact, the most important traditional Jewish commentator on the Hebrew Bible is a man who is known by his initials, Rashi, which stands for Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, Rabbi Solomon, the son of Isaac. And he doesn't really write a lot. His style is to gather from rabbinic literature from rabbinic commentaries that are, you know, 15 years, 1,500 years older than him, and he assembles a selection of them to be a running commentary on the biblical text. And what he's always doing, he never shares the problem that he's trying to address. He just addresses it. So you have to kind of stop and go, well, what is he trying to address here, right? And his first comment about and he doesn't say why does, he does actually say, why does the Bible begin here? And his answer is to show readers that God is in charge. That without God, none of this happens. And for Rashi, that's very important. Because for him, if God made all this and God is in charge, God inherently has the authority to do everything else God will do in this story. And we, the readers, have to understand that and accept that. And that's the standard answer that I was taught in grammar school and in high school. And then at some point, 
you begin to realize it's kind of a silly answer, with all due respect to the great Rashi, (laughs) because telling someone that it is so is never why they believe it's so. Right? Well, it says right here, God created it, so now you have to listen to everything. No, I don't. I just have to say I don't share your premise. It can say God says it, it that God did it, but I choose not to believe it. (laughs) So saying that God created it doesn't actually by itself give God any authority. We as readers can choose to authorize God as the creator, but if we choose not to recognize the truth of the words, they have no power. So a little bit, we have to realize the most authoritative voice when it comes to reading these books is our own. And that's both a burden and a responsibility, but a huge opportunity. And I think the Bible knows that from the very beginning. We're going to jump in with the beginning of time as you humans understand it. But it can't be for the reason that by telling you God made it, you'll submit to God. Because it's backwards. Until you choose to submit to God, whatever that might mean to you, then God has no authority. So that can't be the reason. Now, a better, I think, better answer, and it's not limited to the creation story, it's to the whole book of Genesis, which was a very important 20th century rabbi, uh, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who was in many ways kind of the, the... the most important rabbi in what's called modern orthodoxy, because he was a very august orthodox rabbi who also had a PhD in philosophy from the University of Berlin and then comes to America and becomes the head of Yeshiva University. It's an amazing story. Um, And he says, look, because the answer to this is going to be God's authority, that can't wash exactly. Now, he wouldn't have said the stuff I said about the authority of the reader. He probably would have slapped me for saying that, but okay. (laughs) He says, you need Genesis because it's all about human relations. And you have to figure out that these human relations have to be worked out before you can do anything else. Until you understand the richness that is the human experience shot through these family stories and the founding of the Jewish people, talk more about that a little bit, isn't that big a deal. He wasn't concerned with the founding of other people. But he said, no, you got to start at the beginning of the human family. Because these are human stories. And so, for me, I look at this and I say, well, it has to begin here. But not to prove God's authority. But ironically, to invite us to live up to our own authority and our own responsibility and not hide behind the stories but let the stories teach us and guide us Hmm. spring is in the air at littleton coin company and we want to help you brighten your collection visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15 percent off your purchase with a wide selection of coins paper money supplies and more Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. 
serving collectors since 1945. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. So... Let's con- let's continue on in the in the path of Genesis there. So so uh, you mentioned uh, there are two creation stories, and we've covered this in some some depth on earlier podcasts. Just you know uh, about the history of of the kingdom of Judea, and and often oftentimes you know uh, running into uh, other uh, more powerful countries coming in uh, and dividing and conquering and all those things. And, and perhaps the reason is because, you know, the kingdom of Judea was divided in two and the northern half followed their hero and, and wrote their creation story and the southern half did the same and then they reunited and so on and so forth. So why do we have two creation stories? So I, and then I want to get back to the first one, but I'm going to answer your question. I, I obviously, anyone who says, I can tell you why you should run, don't walk, <laughs> right? Because they're crazy um, or at least insufferably arrogant. Here's what I can tell you, and and I think it's, again, I can't do this without quoting my own teachers that I've been blessed to have. And the person who makes the best arguments for this is my teacher, John Levinson, um, at Harvard Divinity School. And you're right. There are all kinds of historic, historically based, politically based arguments that deconstruct, forgive me, the various layers that make up the Hebrew Bible. The documentary hypothesis goes back to, you know, early modern Germany and Protestant theologians. And, you know, there's a a 
a J document for Yahweh, for Adonai, and there's an E document for all the words that use Elohim, the Lord, and there are uh, God, rather, and then there is a P document that came out of the priestly culture of ancient Israel, and a D for the Deuteronomist, for the one who gives, because Deuteronomy seems to be its own book. It's a single unitary speech by Moses at the end of his life, and there's discussion that this may be the book that was found by King Josiah in the temple, you know, in the in the 6th century, um, uh, I'm sorry, in the, in the 7th century before the Common Era. I'm actually not so interested in any of those theories, and I'll tell you why. Because at some point, all those different documents coalesced into this book. And the only people we know that are still reading it are the people for whom the book as a unit was meaningful. So pulling it apart into its constituent roots would be like for me standing in front of the most magnificent apple tree and being nourished by the sweetest apples it could produce and say, yeah, none of that matters. I want to just know about its root system. I mean, I guess if you're, you know, if you're an expert in plants, there's a narrow class of people from understanding that root system is very important. But for the average person standing in front of this magnificent apple tree and enjoying its fruits, I would say focus on the fruits (laughs) and the multi-layered stories speak to us as a whole. And so I think. One of that's a long way of saying you're not going to get a lot of biblical history from you that way because those people, the inheritors of those people, didn't inherit the pieces; they inherited the whole. Right? And in fact, you want a really heretical idea? There was probably no Hebrew. I shouldn't say probably. One can make a good case for the fact that books we call the Hebrew Bible didn't exist until after the Israelites go into exile in Babylonia in 586 before the Common Era, after the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem, the one built by Solomon. In which case, the whole collection only ends up speaking to a community when it's made a collection. The individual songs, I'm sure they did speak to people, but we don't know who. We know it began to be determinative and compelling and powerful when it was brought together. And I think one of the reasons you put in two creation stories is precisely to remind people there is never only one way to tell the most important stories in the world. Just like there is never any one way to tell the story of what it means to be Jewish or what it means to be Christian or what it means to be a Hirschfeld or a Williams or anything else. There are always, by the way, we don't have to like them all. We don't have to agree with them all. We may actually beat the crap out of each other over people we tell, think we're telling the wrong story. But we should never kid ourselves. The most important stories in the world are never told only one way. Never. And we know that in the case of creation from the very beginning of creation. And so I think for me, after you peel away all the history, and I know I put in history when I said I wouldn't do history, that ultimately, I guess in that sense, it's because I believe, and this is where I do believe, that Scripture is the infinite gift of an infinite God. A gift is given because of the one to whom you give it. 
And so for me, how we got the different stories is less important than what does it mean to be the recipient of a multivalent story? What does it mean to be the recipient of a text that is so sacred? I know no one owns it. I know there can't be one way of reading it. Even though at any given time, I may pick a way and that may be my way. But it's very important to remember, I have picked that way because I have my way because I'm finite. But from the perspective of the God who gave it, one creation story, I imagine God laughing, saying, turn the page, don't you get it? The only thing there's one of is me. Everything else is open to interpretation. It doesn't mean you can't make a choice and you don't have to make disciplined choices. But no, there isn't one creation story. And by the way, I think that's why from the very beginning, the apex of the first creation story is in Genesis 1, 27. Well, we're told, so God created, and the English is man, human is a much better translation. The word Adam, and I'm not being politically correct, I'm the least politically correct person in the world. Adam, the name of that first human, and you'll see why I'm really pushing on this, because there's a conception in which it's a man, but not from this story, is because the Adam is made from the Adama, from the dirt, is formed out of the dirt. It's a human, and you'll see why. So God created the human in his own image. And here I will say his because Hebrew is a gendered language. And that has problems. Because as much as we may tell people, no, of course God's not a man. If you train people for thousands of years to say God and spell it capital H-E, I don't care how much you say God isn't a guy. You've taught people God is a guy. So that's a problem. (laughs) It's a challenge. But leave that. He created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, it's all in the singular until we get to maleness and femaleness, and then it's pluralized. Now, it's very clear from this story that it's one being, and yet it's one being which our normal understandings of gender can't contain. Now, that does not, I'm telling you, I am the most unreconstructed, knuckle-dragging guy you're ever going to meet. (laughs) I believe in real understandings of maleness and femaleness. But like the words of Scripture, I understand fully they cannot possibly contain the fullness of what it means to be in the image of God. Mm. Not possible unless I really have a God who I think is a finite man or a finite woman. But if I don't believe that, then to be created in the image of God, however conservative one's conceptions of gender and sex may be, cannot be the fullness of what it means to be in the image of God. It's not possible. And that's baked in to those very words. God creates him in his own image. Male and female, God created them. But I thought there's only one. There is only one. But it's male and it's female? Yes. And if I were going to speculate, what I wish is that the people who knew that the fullness of our gender norms can't contain the fullness of 
the image of God that we believe in, would also appreciate that the first part of the verse says, yeah, but they really are, you know, guys, and they really are a certain way. And then I wish the people who understood they really are guys, and they really are women, and they really are a certain way would then say, but of course we understand that could never mean what it means to be in the image of God. That from the very beginning, whatever the norms we use are, and like I said, I believe in the use of those norms, but not if we think they're exhaustive for all people. It just, it, I mean, that's not me. That's Genesis. Now, what we do with that reality, I get it. We'll have very different views. But what we can never say again is that to think of the fullness of the image of God in clearly gendered terms, now that was taken off the table thousands of years ago by Genesis one twenty seven. How we deal with it, that's on us. But that kind of absolute clarity, this is this and that is that, no, no, no. I didn't take that away, you didn't take that away, some postmodern the, you know, theoretician of gender didn't take that away, right? Foucault didn't take that away, Derrida didn't take that away. Genesis 127 took that away. And now we have to figure out how to live with the insights of the last 50 or 75 years and the reported experience of our family members of the last 10 and 20 years and the thousands of years before that that thought, no, it was really this way because there's a wisdom to be found in both. So I think that's part of what I would say about the importance of starting here. But the other thing that I think is really crucially important is that these first, this first human, in addition to being indeterminate in terms of gender and sex, this is not a Jew, this is not a Christian, this is not a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a secularist. This is a human. Now, that doesn't mean that details are unimportant. In fact, the next couple thousand pages of this book, depending on how far you keep reading, right? If you stop with the Hebrew Bible, you keep reading in the New Testament, are all about details matter. But if details supplant the fundamental claim that every human is created in the image of God, then we don't understand what the details are there for. One of the things that breaks my heart is that people who appreciate details don't understand that they're details toward reaching the fullness of our humanity. And the people who understand that the details get in the way for so many people fail to understand that, yeah, that's fine, but without details, there's no life. Pick whatever details you want, but without details, there's no life. And so, but I think the Bible wants to be very clear. We'll get to details. And if we keep doing this, we'll get to Genesis 12 and to Abraham and the founding of the Israelite people, but not yet. Right now, let it settle in that this is a human story. Back to what Rabbi Soloveitchik said. It's a human story about how human beings are going to relate to themselves, to each other, and to God. These are human needs, 
and human questions, and they transcend any particular tradition. And then the particular traditions are the tools we use to dive into addressing these eternal questions. In fact, the, the strongest conviction of this, and I don't think it was ever published in English, so I can't even recommend it to people, was um, one of Rabbi Soloveitchik's great teachers, and he was a teacher of mine, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, um, who founded one of the more important uh, modern yeshivas, academies of men's higher Jewish learning in Israel, uh, published a book length, a series of articles that then became a book in Hebrew, I don't think it was published in English, in which he posits that you can find the entire teaching of the entire Hebrew Bible in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And his point is that, yes, starting with Abraham, the Jewish people will have to unpack their mission as Jews to realize the human trajectory that's laid out in the first 11 chapters. You can't begin the Jewish story with the Jewish people. You can't begin, if I can be so bold, the Christian story with Christian people. You have to begin with humans. And then humans have to grow up and realize there's no way to be a human in general, so I'm going to have to dive in. And it's funny, we're back to the question you asked about music and why I like the combination of discipline and improvisation. Right? Genesis opens with the fact this is going to be a grand improvisation. And then it reminds us, yeah, but without discipline, you're going to be a lousy improviser. (laughs) Does God have a faith does he have a body or even a name? If he does, does he know that I'm alive? Is God even here? Does she care? So, so.
God has a face, her face must look like you. Like a Tina, an Ahmed or Mildred, a Russ and his husband, Gus and their children. Face like a Kim, a Ted or Tyrone, a Lucy born with an extra chromosome, a Pablo with legs he can't move by himself. is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.